The David Rubenstein Podcast is sponsored by Wells Fargo. Nuveen is an asset manager striving to invest in the futures of Hispanic and Black Americans, and they're working to create products and services focused on generational investing for diverse communities around the country. At Wells Fargo, we're helping our clients forge what's next. Dr. Raj Shah is dedicating his life to solving the problems of health and hunger. After getting a medical school degree, he began his career at the Gates Foundation. From there, he joined the Obama administration as the head of the USAID. And now he's the head of the Rockefeller Foundation. I had a chance recently to sit down with Raj Shah to talk about his passion for solving these global problems. So tell us, what is the Rockefeller Foundation? Um, I know the Rockefeller name, but what is the foundation? What does it really do? Well, the foundation was created more than 100 years ago by John D. Rockefeller. And the idea was very simple, was to use science and innovation to lift up as many people around the world as possible. And over that period of time, this foundation's helped create the field of modern medicine, invest in international public health, launch a green revolution through agricultural sciences that helped almost a billion people move off the brink of hunger and starvation. And today, our big focus is around climate and energy. So if I said to you, uh, I have a great idea for the Rockefeller Foundation, what's your polite way of saying no? <laughs> well, it depends on the idea, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, but in general, we love hearing about new, new ideas. We do tend to be a little more uh, directed and focused than perhaps other institutions. You know, almost 50% of our giving is focused right now on ending energy poverty around the world, which we can talk about. And so we tend to sort of set our strategies and then go find partners that can add value to implementing those strategies as opposed to just taking in uh, recommendations broadly. Now recently you wrote an article about the importance of climate change and what you're trying to do about it. What is your idea of how we can tackle the climate change problem? Well, we actually are very concerned that the larger global effort to fight climate change is missing a major, major focus on developing and emerging economies. The reality is if all of the wealthy countries, the United States, Europe, China, live up to the policies they've already committed to, then 75% of all future emissions will come from 81 countries that today are classified as housing more than 3 billion people that live in energy poverty. And right now, we're on path to provide those people with electricity and energy through coal, heavy fuel oil, natural gas, and other sources of power that will continue to drive emissions. We're trying to change that pathway for those billions of people to focus much more on renewables. I've often thought that one of the problems with climate change and getting people to do it is that the benefits are not going to be felt in your lifetime. Most likely, your great-great-great-grandchildren will see the benefits of what we do now, and it's hard to get people to change their conduct for their great-great-great-grandchildren. How are you going to solve that problem? How are you going to get people to really care about reducing the use of carbon? Well, David, I'll tell you, we're seeing the impacts in communities we work in around the world right now. And the reality is we've already seen downward pressure on agricultural output in Africa and parts of India and Latin America that are increasing the number of people who are hungry and the number of communities that are threatened. We're already seeing tremendous changes to coastal communities, whether it's in Bangladesh or in South America, that are reducing people's livelihoods and access to fisheries and sources of protein. And we're already seeing women working in salt flats, whom I, were, I was with them just last winter, uh, in working in extreme heat in India, 
and some even perishing through trying to make a dollar a day or two dollars a day doing bat breaking work in 110, 112 degree weather. So this is a crisis that's affecting people, especially vulnerable people and poorer communities right now, which is why the foundation is so focused on fighting climate and change. And you're putting a large number of your resources and personnel into this effort? Absolutely. In fact, we're all in on addressing climate change. And we, as an institution founded originally on the resources that came from Standard Oil, we've divested of fossil fuels in our endowment. We're making a commitment to run our operations in a net zero manner by 2040. And we're very committed to making sure our partnerships help change the trajectory of climate change, especially in developing countries. Now, recently, you've also written a book called Big Bets. Um, we'll go through the book and some of the big bets you've made, but what gave you the idea of writing a book so you're so young in your career about your career already? Well, I mostly wanted to just make the point that when you work in social impact or when you work on issues like global development, which I've had a chance to work on at the Gates Foundation under President Obama at USAID and now here at the Rockefeller Foundation, you don't have to settle for incrementally doing good. So much of human charity is about sort of doing a little, doing what you can and feeling good about it. And I wanted to introduce the idea that you can actually try to solve some of the world's biggest, most challenging problems. And in fact, if you look at our philanthropic history, not mine personally, but that of the Rockefeller Foundation as an institution or what the Gates Foundation has done as an institution, I think their biggest wins have been uh, thinking of solving problems globally and moving hundreds of millions or tens of millions of people out of really dire living conditions into a much more bright future. What about making little small incremental bets that are easier to get done? Why isn't that easier to do than the big bets, which could fail? Well, ironically, uh, big bets require making lots of small incremental bets along the way. We're trying to bring power and electricity through renewables to a billion people who live literally in the dark with less electricity per person than it takes to power one light bulb and one small appliance in their home through the course of a year. We don't solve that through one large effort. We're going to solve that by collecting and aggregating thousands of small actions from people around the world. But here's the difference. When you aspire to do something big and bold, you can then uh, talk to leaders who want to be a part of solutions at that scale. I can sit down with Larry Fink at BlackRock and design financing instruments that can bring billions of dollars. I can talk to the heads of those putting together the COP uh, climate negotiations at the UAE and structure new initiatives that can mobilize the kinds of resources we need. Or I can partner with colleagues at Tata Power and say, let's build 10,000 rural mini grids and move 25 million people out of power, uh, out of energy poverty. It's those types of solutions in my view, happen when you dream big. Our sponsor, Wells Fargo, recently spoke to Jose Manaya, CEO of Naveen, about how his company is serving the retirement needs of diverse communities. My parents emigrated here from the Dominican Republic. I grew up in Washington Heights in Inwood. My dad was a cook. My mother was a housekeeper at a hotel. They came here with a dream of having a better life for their kids. They barely had a bank account. The concept of a 401k was not there. We are in a retirement crisis in this country. We have an opportunity to help the Hispanic and African-American communities retire with dignity. If you just looked at the U.S. Latinos, they'd be the fifth largest GDP in the world. Nuveen is an asset manager. Our business is about trust. When I think about generational investing, I think about stability and lower volatility. So we think about the long term. 
What's interesting about our relationship with Wells Fargo is we share similar goals. At Wells Fargo, we're helping our clients forge what's next. Let's talk about your background. So your parents came from where? Uh, my parents are from India. Uh, where did they settle? Uh, well, they, they started actually in Pasadena, California. My dad was an engineer who was working on the Apollo programs for a company called Bendix that was designing components on Apollo missions. But they quickly moved to Detroit, Michigan, and my dad had a 30-year career at Ford Motor Company. And your mother? My mom is an early childhood education specialist, and she started a Montessori school and ran that throughout my childhood. Right. So you grew up in the Detroit area, and I assume you were a superstar student, is that right? I was a pretty good student, and I grew up in an Indian-American community uh, that was pretty focused on being a good student. You went to University of Michigan? I did. Go Blue. And what did you want to study there? Well, I started as a, uh, in engineering because I grew up in a family where you're either going to be a doctor or an engineer, and I thought I'd do, uh, be an engineer, maybe be an auto designer was my sort of early plan. But quickly switched to literature, science, and arts and started studying economics and policy. All right. So when you graduated from Michigan, I assume you did reasonably well there. I did. You decided to go to medical school at University of Pennsylvania? I did. And, but medical school wasn't enough. You also wanted to get another degree as well? You know, in reality, I think I felt uh, I was supposed to be a doctor because I just sort of grew up with that. Uh, and I got very interested in politics and policy, so I wanted to learn about health economics, and I joined an MD-PhD program at Penn Medical and the Wharton School. And did you set up shop to become a doctor? I didn't. <laughs> and, uh, did, did that disappoint your parents? It, it, well, it did at the time. It may be not disappoint, but it made them uh, awfully nervous. But after I took my last set of board exams, my then-girlfriend and I, now wife and I, got in my car and drove 14 hours to Nashville, Tennessee from Philadelphia in order to volunteer on Al Gore's presidential campaign uh, when it was during, it it was was during the year the 2000. It was, yeah. So when he did not become president, what did you do? Uh, well, I found myself unemployed for a little while, and I started dabbling in political consulting and doing some other things. Did that things. make your parents nervous that their yes, well-educated son had no job? Very nervous. And, and frankly, they and everybody else wanted, and I even wanted to, you know, thought, okay, gosh, now I should go back to medicine and just be a doctor and do a residency. Uh, but then I got a phone call from a friend who I met on the campaign who said, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates were setting up this foundation and they had big aspirations for what they wanted to do and they were looking for someone who knew health economics and medicine uh, and had some perspective on global health issues. So I interviewed for a job. And you got it? I did. So what was the uh, challenge you had there? I, you wrote about it in your book, but why don't you describe what you tried to do there uh, over the two or three year period of time you were there? Yeah, so th this uh, project was really their big initial effort. Bill and Melinda had read an article about a disease called rotavirus that was killing uh, 400,000 kids around the world every year. And in that same article, they pointed out that a company, Merck, was rolling out a vaccine in the United States to address rotavirus where kids actually didn't die of the disease. And so they had the very simple question of why couldn't we get the vaccines to every child on the planet, in particular those that need them to survive. So your project was to get this vaccine to everybody in the world, essentially every child who needed it. Well, every childhood vaccine that existed to every child who needed it. And so we studied the global birth cohort of about 105 million kids at the time. 
uh, we assessed the data and concluded that probably about half of those kids were getting some form of robust vaccination that could save their lives from infectious diseases and half were not. So did you eventually meet with Bill Gates when working on this problem? Yeah, and I, I write about this in the book because uh, I learned from Bill the power of asking a simple question. It, it wasn't just one meeting, but he would pull us all together quite regularly and say, you know, what does it take to vaccinate every child on the planet? We were trying to get to a cost analysis of that problem, which required really deconstructing the challenges. And it was interesting because what I learned in that setting was sometimes complexity can make it hard to engage. And Bill just insisted on finding a simple answer to a simple set of questions. And that helped us craft a strategy that made a big difference. Now you point out in the book that you couldn't vaccinate all the children in the world by yourselves. The Gates Foundation had good resources, but not unlimited power to do everything. So you had to engage countries. And you point out in the book that one time you went to meet with President Chirac of France, and you didn't have shoes that were appropriate. What happened? Well, what we, what we learned as we were doing the work was that the vaccine industry wasn't even producing enough vaccines for kids in low-income countries effectively. And so we needed to restructure the way the world financed vaccines. We put a proposal together for the world's big, uh, for a big and first social impact bond to solve that problem. And we were effectively seeking France's support to make that bond viable. Uh, and so Bill and I met with President Chirac at the Elysee Palace. And uh, I was coming from Seattle, and I just uh, had old shoes and didn't have, uh, didn't, I had actually left the new shoes I bought for the meeting uh, back in Seattle. And so I was wearing shoes that had a little hole in the bottom of it. Uh, and I was just self-conscious about that. And so we sat in the meeting, and the meeting went great. President Schrock said, we're not only going to make this happen, but I'm going to direct my finance minister, Nicholas Sarkozy, to create this project with you guys. And that ended up transforming global immunization and vaccinating nearly a billion children over 20 years. But when I called Rick to ask him about uh, what Bill thought of the meeting, which I thought was a home run, he was sort of ribbing me a little bit and said, well, Bill thought the meeting was fine from a content perspective, but he was really concerned about your footwear. And at the time, I was just a young kid working at the Gates Foundation. I was terrified that that was actually true. And uh, I learned they were just making fun well, of me. Well, you survived that. But uh, <laughs> after you accomplished that global immunization program, uh, you said you wanted to do something different. So you decided to leave. What did you do next? Uh, well, I was at Gates uh, for, for a while. And after, uh, after President Obama got elected, I got a phone call to join the Obama administration. And it had always been my dream since I left medical school to work for Gore that I'd get a chance to serve in an administration. And so I moved to Washington, D.C. So you went initially to work for the Secretary of Agriculture, um, who is, I guess, the, still the Secretary of Agriculture. <laughs> he right? is, Tom Vilsack. He, he's had a, a couple tours of duty in that position. So um, you later got asked to be the head of USAID. What is USAID? Well, the United States Agency for International Development is America's prime development and humanitarian agency. It was founded by John F. Kennedy, and it has a very uh, clear and direct mission. And the idea is bringing dignity, security, hope, and opportunity to the poorest parts of the world makes us all safer and makes us all more prosperous. So you got that job when you were 50 years old? I got that job when I was 36 years old. 36 years old. You're running USAID. How many employees does it have? Uh, we had 11,000. And did you feel qualified to run something that big? Uh, well, you know, at the time, uh, 
I, I did until you know the work started. <laughs> so, so I was confident that I had ideas and experiences that could help uh, the agency be successful. But it wasn't until the Haiti earthquake happened effectively on my first week on the job that I realized I needed a lot of help. So the massive earthquake in Haiti occurred. USAID is going to take the lead for the U.S. in trying to redevelop uh, and fix uh, the problems in Haiti. Um, and so you go to the Oval Office and you hear something you're not supposed to hear, which is the Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, now the President, saying, is this guy really able to lead this effort or something like that? Is that right? Yeah, so uh, President Obama called me actually the day before, uh, right after the earthquake happened, and said, first time I took a call from a president, uh, and said, Raj, I'm putting you in charge of a whole of government effort, civilian and military, to respond to this tragic crisis, which ultimately led to more than 250,000 people perishing just two hours from our shores. And so the next morning in an Oval Office briefing, I got there just a few minutes early because I was terrified of being late. Your shoes were okay? <laughs> My shoes were fine. Uh, I walk in and President Obama and Vice President Biden were over by the window, uh, Biden facing out and Obama facing the sort of door when you, when you come in. So he saw me come in. And I, Pr Vice President Biden was in the middle of saying to President Obama, are you sure about this guy, Rod Shaw? He's only 36. He just got here to Washington. And the person who leads FEMA, Craig Fugate, you know, has much more experience leading these efforts. Uh, maybe we should ask Craig to help. And Obama saw me and like walked over right away and said, Raj, come in, sit down. And then next thing I knew, everybody poured into the, the meeting room and we very quickly got right into the work. What ultimately happened in Haiti? What did the United States government do through USAID that helped ameliorate the problem? Not, not solve it, but ameliorate yeah. it. Well, in reality, we mounted really the fastest and largest humanitarian response in history at that point. And we did it because we were, and we were able to do it, uh, not because USAID did everything, but because we were able to, in, as I write about in the book, kind of open the turnstiles and invite in colleagues from the Federal Emergency Management Agency as well as the D Department of Defense and use all of those assets and capabilities. So people must say to you all the time, you've done a lot of things, you should run for office uh, do you ever think about running for something? I do. Since I was a little kid, I've always been enamored of the concept of public service. And frankly, my time in government taught me uh, that if we have the right kinds of leaders in place, we can get a lot done. So you had decided after a while, you've been at USAID for a while, maybe it's time to leave and do something else. And then all of a sudden, another crisis comes along, Ebola. So what was your responsibility and how did you tackle that problem? Well, USAID carried the responsibility of uh, working with the Centers for Disease Control to really mount a response in West Africa and contain and ultimately limit the disease before it spread around the world. Right, so after Ebola problem is more or less solved, I wouldn't say you've eliminated Ebola completely, but it, it addressed the problem. You decided finally to leave and you then pursued what I've called the highest calling of mankind, which is private equity. <laughs> uh, you, start up your, you set up your own firm to invest um, in, uh, I'd say, uh, electrification projects around the world, is that right? That's correct. Latitude and you had capital. two very big backers. Yes. Uh, Dick Blum was one of them and um, David Bonderman the other. Yes. We started the process of building a, a small firm, uh, partnered closely with the, a larger firm, TPG, and, uh, and started identifying projects and raising funds. And I got about a year and a half, two years into that, about a year and a half into that, and the opportunity at the Rockefeller Foundation came up and I ultimately felt that that was more aligned with what I okay. wanted to so do. So you became the president of the Rockefeller Foundation. How many years ago now is that? Six.
Now, the Rockefeller Foundation is very famous over 100 years. It's not nearly as big as the Gates Foundation. So how do you uh, deal with the challenge that people think you have unlimited amounts of money, but you really don't? You know, our, our resources really should be society's risk capital to solve tough problems, and we think of it that way. So we're not trying to pay for solutions at scale. We're really trying to build partnerships that either allow companies to build out renewable electrification to reach people who are very poor and make that profitable and viable on a commercial basis or get governments to do things that are transformational like we did during the COVID crisis here in the United States. So um, do you worry about um, the problems of the dysfunction of the U.S. government sometimes? I mean, clearly we see the U.S. government, the Congress can't get its act together in passing bills and so forth. Is that something you address or nothing you can do about that? We work on that every day because whether we're working to expand diagnostic testing during the COVID crisis here in the United States or working to reinvest in global development efforts abroad, U.S. government leadership is almost always critical to success. And the truth is, you know, if you work behind the scenes quietly, as, as you know, you can get Republicans and Democrats to collaborate and partner. And you can find those partners who want to do the right things. They're not always the loudest voices. They're not usually screaming on cable news. Uh, but they are, in fact, the ones who make things happen. Let's go through some of the leaders for whom you've worked. Um, uh, Al Gore, I don't know if you worked that closely with him. You got to know him a bit. Uh, what kind of leader was he, or is he? Uh, well, I worked less closely with Al Gore. I was a, a very junior member of his campaign, and I've gotten to know him more in recent years as we focused on climate change. And I just think he's extraordinarily smart, very, very disciplined, and extremely persistent in his beliefs. Right. What about Barack Obama? How do you find him as a leader? Uh, well, President Obama I learned a lot from just by watching the way he worked. And in my view, he, he had this unique ability to be extremely determined, passionate, and also preternaturally calm uh, in any given moment. Uh, but you sort of knew that underneath that calm was an absolute determination to sort of win in the long run, whether winning was on a major foreign policy issue or on some domestic transformation of our economy. What about Joe Biden? Uh, at the time, Vice President Biden was, you know, he was just so personable, like especially during my some tough moments. I gave a speech called the National Prayer Breakfast Speech and was was actually quite nervous about it for a number of reasons. And he was the kind of leader who'd come and put his arm around you and say, you know, you got this uh, in much more colorful ways. What about Hillary Clinton? You've worked with her when when she was secretary of state. What was that like? Uh, well, I learned from Secretary Clinton uh, just the power of toughness. You know, like there are times, especially in government, where you take hits and uh, where people critique what you're doing if you're trying to be a change agent and trying to make change happen. Uh, and I learned early on from her that, you know, this is a woman who's taken a lot of hits and just keeps going. And if you care about what you're doing and you believe you're trying to help other people and you see a path to making a difference, you have to have a strong shell. So as you look back on your career, what are you most pleased that you have achieved so far? Well, the big bets that worked, uh, the effort to vaccinate a billion children and save 16 million child lives over two decades through the establishment of the Global Vaccine Alliance, the effort to prevent Ebola from spreading out of West Africa and into the rest of the world, when the CDC was estimating 1.6 million cases and we ended Ebola through bold action, with less than 30,000 cases and less than 11,000 deaths and not one 
case of transmission in the United States. And the big bet we're taking on right now to reach a billion people who live in energy poverty with renewable electrification, we already have projects with line of sight to serving 77 million of them. Those are the things I'm most proud of. So people must say to you all the time, you've done a lot of things, you should run for office. Uh, do you ever think about running for something? I do. Since I was a little kid, I've always been enamored of the concept of public service. And frankly, my time in government taught me uh, that if we have the right kinds of leaders in place, we can get a lot done. Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen.